When people who have, say, a body mass index of 45 lose substantial weight, go down to, say, 41, they don't have diabetes. So they're still obese, but they don't have diabetes. But of course, that's the operation of the personal fat threshold again. They've just come down. And so it's not a matter of totally getting rid of the obesity. That would be ideal, perhaps. But no, we're just talking about the metabolic side of things here. And so people can remain obese, but manage to get rid of the diabetes, even within that frame. Glucose is a very useful index. It's just as a general index of how the diabetes is progressing. But when we look under the surface in type 2 diabetes, it's the fat that's driving the problem with the glucose. So, yes, using glucose as a measure of what's happening is fine, but it has become a sort of mesmeric uh, substance that's diverted scientists away from what's really happening. Welcome back. In today's episode, I sit down with Professor Roy Taylor. To say this was an honour is an understatement. Roy is one of the most esteemed scientists researching nutrition and type 2 diabetes. His work with studies such as Counterbalance, Counterpoint, Direct, and most recently, the Retune trial have fundamentally changed our understanding of what causes type 2 diabetes and what people living with diabetes can do to improve their metabolic health and quality of life. In this exchange, you will learn about Roy's twin cycle hypothesis, why some people who are overweight develop type 2 diabetes and others don't, what the personal fat threshold concept is, why fat accumulation in the liver and pancreas is so damaging to metabolic health, how someone can get fat out of these organs and in doing so, normalize their blood glucose and blood lipids, and much more. With that, Let's hear from Professor Roy Taylor. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence 
that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Okay, Professor Roy Taylor, let's dive straight into the deep end here. And then maybe if need be along the way, I can ask you to clarify a few things. What is the twin cycle hypothesis? The twin cycle hypothesis was my attempt to put together all the observations on how the body actually worked, how the body dealt with food and metabolism, and what went wrong in type 2 diabetes. So over the years, we'd learned firstly that muscle was very resistant to insulin and using MRI techniques advanced MRI techniques, we could measure the glycogen in muscle and, in fact, use this to show that people who had normal uh, insulin sensitivity in muscle stored a lot of their food as muscle glycogen within the first five hours after eating. One third, really quite a lot. Whereas people who had low sensitivity to insulin in muscle, so-called insulin resistance, those people stored almost none. And from other work, we knew that the only way that that glucose would be handled is not being stored properly. The only way it could be handled would be for the body to turn it into fat. Now, that sounds like magic, but that's exactly what the liver does. And so... That excess glucose would be shunted into fat, and people would be more likely to build up fat in the liver. Now, we'd shown fat in the liver causes the liver not to respond to insulin. Now, I put all this together, and the twin cycle hypothesis runs like this. Basically, a little too much food over a long period of time will cause fat to start building up in the liver. And when the liver starts getting resistant to insulin, it will start putting out too much glucose because insulin usually dampens down the constant production of the liver of glucose. So there we have glucose rising a bit, but what happens next is that the pancreas kicks in and insulin levels rise a bit to just bring things under control. Now that's fine temporarily, 
But unfortunately, insulin speeds up the process of turning glucose into fat. And so we've got a vicious cycle that started running. That will run on and glucose levels will gradually peg up. But it's not just the glucose that the liver puts out. The liver also puts out fat for the rest of the body. The liver really supplies you with the energy you need to live every day. Overnight, it's the glucose coming out from the body that keeps your brain alive and the fat coming out from your liver that keeps the rest of the body alive. That's what they use to burn for energy, second by second. It's an astonishing process. But if there's too much fat in the liver, then that one liver cycle will have a knock-on effect because it will leave too much fat in the blood. The liver puts out too much fat. It will be delivered to all tissues. Now, any excess fat would usually be stored under the skin. And metabolically, that's safe. It doesn't cause any metabolic damage. However, in the situation of excess and with a relatively full subcutaneous under the skin compartment, then fat's going to build up elsewhere. And that's the problem. And it's when fat starts building up inside the pancreas that really the action starts. So we have a second vicious cycle in the pancreas. The fat stops the insulin-producing cells from working properly. Lo and behold, that means glucose levels are higher after every meal. And lo and behold, that means more glucose is going to be turned into fat. And so we have these twin vicious cycles interacting. The importance of this twin cycle, Simon, was that it explained type 2 diabetes as a simple chain of events. Yes, interacting cycles, but a single cause. Now, that is simple. And what we see in populations is when they're overfed, diabetes erupts. If they're relatively starved, diabetes goes away. So all of a sudden, we had a handle on this, and it was a complete revelation and a move away from what all the experts were saying up to 2011, that type 2 diabetes was a complex heterogeneous disorder caused by multiple different factors. Well, that's nonsense. Basically, you inherit your genes, but if you put on a bit too much weight, heavier than you can bear, then these twin vicious cycles will start turning. And being a hypothesis, it could be tested and shown to be right or wrong. You said there that the twin cycle hypothesis provides an explanation for a single cause. What if someone is thinking, well, hang on, how can excessive calories explain this if not everyone who becomes overweight or obese ends up with type 2 diabetes? That's a very good question. The first point to make is that there's a wide range of thresholds at which people will develop type 2 diabetes. So in our most recent study, we've demonstrated that those slim people who get type 2 diabetes have got too much fat inside their organs. They simply don't show the fat. So does this matter of how much fat 
and this personal threshold for fat. But there's a further point, which is really important. About 70% of people of white European ethnicity will never get diabetes, no matter how much they eat, how fat they become. And in fact, at the moment, 73% of people with uh, who have a body mass image in, sorry, a body mass index over 40, do not have type 2 diabetes and show no signs of getting it in the near future. So we can see that it's only a proportion of people who are susceptible. And that is the stop-go of getting type 2 diabetes. So there are really two stages. One is the eating too much. The other is the uh, genetic factor. But why do I say that it's just one? Well, it's because I'm talking to a group of individuals. They are one person each. And in my consultations with patients, I only have one person in front of me. And that person comes in with a ready-made collection of genes. They are themselves. Now, doctors have to practice the art of the possible. So I'm dealing with individuals. If a person presents to me with type 2 diabetes, they have insulin-producing cells that are susceptible to fat. And that is, the, that is the whole point. So this disease is simple to understand. Right, so it's, it's not necessarily fat or being overweight or obesity that is the single explanation, but it is fat getting inside these organs, the liver and the pancreas specifically, fat, I guess, where we could say it shouldn't be in individuals that are more susceptible to this. So certain individuals, as they're gaining weight, are more genetically predisposed to having fat stored within organs, whereas other individuals have a greater capacity. Would that be the right terminology to store more fat subcutaneously and not inside these organs? Yes, that's absolutely right. Okay, so let me throw back to you what I grasped from your explanation of the twin cycle hypothesis. So it all kind of begins with this positive calorie balance. So a very small calorie surplus over a long period of time, coupled with muscle insulin resistance. This results in an increase in blood glucose or that extra glucose, the body has to do something with it. Instead of forming glycogen in muscle tissue, you get an increase in de novo lipogenesis, which is the conversion of glucose to fat within the liver. With the increase in liver fat, you get insulin resistance in the liver. Insulin's job at the liver being to slow down or halt the uh, flux of glucose from the liver into circulation. So with that, you get an increase in blood glucose. The, the response from the pancreas there is to increase insulin. So insulin levels go up and insulin then increases or drives more fat production in the liver. Eventually, the body has to do something with that excess fat being produced in the liver, packages it up in um, lipoproteins, these VLDL 
very low density lipoproteins, which are an ApoB containing lipoprotein and are therefore atherogenic, and they go out into circulation. If the subcutaneous fat storage has been exceeded, that excess fat that is now in circulation, it has to go somewhere. And eventually it can begin to build up in organs, particularly the pancreas, which then can begin to affect the beta cells in the pancreas that produce insulin such that there is reduced insulin in response to ingesting a carbohydrate-containing meal. And with that, you get increase in plasma glucose and the, the liver begins to convert more glucose into fat and so forth. The cycle kind of self-perpetuates. Did I grasp all of that correctly? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Okay, so I've, I've done a seven-hour kind of deep dive masterclass on ApoB with Dr. Thomas Dayspring. So we've sort of exhaustively covered why elevated ApoB increases risk for cardiovascular disease. But something that we haven't covered much on this show is why elevated blood glucose is such a problem. What is it about blood glucose going above a certain level that makes it so problematic? Well, Glucose will interact with the small blood vessels to directly cause damage. We know that glucose, which is a very soluble compound, just look at how rapidly people can stir it into a cup of tea. Well, it is osmotically active. It will suck water from other compartments across a membrane. And that tends to damage the very delicate cells that line all our capillaries. So the capillaries, the smallest blood vessels that are really in contact with our, our, all our tissues, are really exposed. They're at the front line of damage. And so what are the problems of high sugar? Well, primarily disease where the capillaries are most important in the eye and in the kidney and in nerves. That's where they're delivering such a crucial job and they're most exposed. And that's where the damage first shows. But also the same process is happening inside the lining of the major blood vessels, the arteries. And that's where the heart disease bit comes in. So we've got the glucose effect, which is there. But also we've got the fact of the fat. Now... It's the very fact that diabetes, type 2 diabetes is caused by high levels of uh, fat, essentially. And atheroma and the process of heart trouble is caused by high levels of fat. That's where the two come together. So you see the provision of fat as well as the damage caused by glucose leads to the problem in the arteries. Now... Cardiologists have tended to focus upon the cholesterol level, and that's absolutely fine. As a clinical measure, it's fairly useful, but it's not a real thing in blood. Cholesterol only exists to provide an envelope for the delivery of neutral fat, which we call triglyceride, and that's really the fat I've been referring to throughout this discussion. So... That's the energy source, if you like, for the body. 
but the liver packages it as triglyceride, but you can't put a lump of butter into the circulation. So you've got to wrap it in an envelope that will be okay with the watery blood. And that envelope contains the lipoproteins, including APOA, and that's why it's called uh, a lipoprotein, the protein coat, which includes cholesterol. And so VLDL, which you mentioned, yes, that's raised about 50% in diabetes. 50%? What other component of the blood is so grossly abnormal? Even glucose is raised uh, rather less than that in many people who develop type 2 diabetes. So here we have a gross abnormality, and we've shown that with the weight loss and reversing type 2 diabetes, it goes back to normal. And moreover, we've shown the composition of the fat, which comes out of the de novo lipogenesis, turning glucose into fat, reflects this. And that too drops sharply to become normal. So yes, it's it's an absolutely beautiful process when you see the simplicity of nature working, yes, in a complicated environment, but the processes are actually very simple. That's how nature works, simple, robust processes. It's interesting to, to think about the fact that in this disease state, often the focus is just on the changes to blood glucose. But as you're speaking to here, there are changes to, to, to blood lipids. But, I mean, is that something that you pause and, and think about, that you know, people are, are wearing CGMs and are hyper-focused just on the glucose component, but there is also this kind of, I guess, derangement occurring with blood lipids at the same time? First of all, glucose is a very useful index. It's just as a general index of how the diabetes is progressing. But when we look under the surface in type 2 diabetes, it's the fat that's driving the problem with the glucose. So, yes, using glucose as a measure of what's happening is fine, but it has become a sort of... <laughs> Uh, mesmeric uh, substance that's diverted scientists away from what's really happening. Now, this isn't the first time that this has been suggested. A long time ago, a fabulous American scientist, uh, McGarry, uh, wrote a famous paper called What if Minkowski had been a music? Now, Minkowski first uh, reported this matter of the high sugar, but the taste uh, was the, the, the thing. He could taste it. And what if he lacked the sense of, of taste? That's agusia. So what if he hadn't detected the sugar? Well, he might have tumbled to the fat straight away. That was a point McGarry was making. And ah, because it's not been such... Uh, an easy thing to conceptualize and put together in the way the twin cyclone hypothesis puts it together. It's escaped attention over the last few decades. So, yes, this is something that uh, needs to be sorted out. Glucose, a very useful indicator. Fat, the hidden driver. So we come back to the twin cycle hypothesis. At the beginning of it, you mentioned there's a positive calorie balance 
and there is some pre-existing muscle insulin resistance. So would it be fair to say that the insulin resistance coupled with positive energy balance, that this is ground zero? Does the twin cycle sort of start if you are not insulin resistant in muscle tissue? That's a very good question. And for most people, the answer would be, well, yes, there was pre-existing muscle insulin resistance. But we know there's a wide range of what's casually referred to as uh, insulin resistance. But that's entirely within the range that we see uh, in the background population. And indeed, some people are quite reasonably sensitive to insulin. But of course, we've got an interplay here. We've got the matter of the uh, food excess, and we've got the matter of the insulin resistance. Now, with the insulin resistance, the diabetes will come on earlier. But sooner or later, with food excess, if the person is susceptible, then the diabetes will develop. So you can see it's really a sliding scale of possibility of developing it and also the matter of time to uh, have this type 2 diabetes pop out and become uh, evident. What's causing that insulin resistance in the muscle tissue though in the in the first place? Is, is it the positive energy balance itself? Is it the sedentary lifestyles that, that people are living? The insulin resistance is largely a familial characteristic. It tends to run in families. So uh, the most sedentary person in one family might have insulin resistance that's actually lower than the most active person in another family. So we've got genetic factors, and the reasons for them are buried in evolution, and it's guesswork trying to sort out what was going on. But they're there. But on top of that, we've got two major factors. We've got the accumulation of fat, because fat will make muscle insulin resistance as well. But also, we've got physical activity. And exercise and an active lifestyle will maximize the possible insulin sensitivity of muscle. In other words, reduce the insulin resistance. And staying slim will also minimize that. So, yes, as soon as we start talking about muscle insulin resistance, we can identify several factors. That suddenly seems a bit, a bit complicated. But hey, for the individual in front of the doctor, they can modify their insulin resistance to some extent usefully by being physically active. But that's not the... The major stop-go, the major stop-go is the constant food intake and just getting that right. Is there an evolutionary explanation, Roy, for, for why some people are more susceptible to insulin resistance and others are, are less susceptible, others are better at storing fat subcutaneously and, and protected against this fat inside the liver and the pancreas? Well, the, the usual explanation uh, that's offered is so-called the thrifty phenotype. In other words, people who have a body set up that tends to conserve food and take all opportunities to take on board food 
and the ones who are going to survive periods of famine and food shortage. They will just about have enough to get by on. Other people will have less, be susceptible to in, in, um, infections, for instance, die off before they have children. And so the population becomes enriched with those people who are best suited to survive famine. Now, populations that have been exposed to repeated cycles of famine, such as in India, uh, particularly, and across parts of the Far East, then these people have got a quite a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes if the whole population is overnourished. So that is taken as support for the hypothesis. So, yes, we can imagine uh, reasons for this coming about, but, you know, we can never be absolutely certain. It's not something we can test in a rigorous way because we would need to conduct experiments over uh, many scores of generations of humans. And of course, that's not within our gift. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Just to kind of double click on your concept, the personal fat threshold, I guess a phrase that I believe that you coined that. The personal fat threshold speaks to how much fat you can store subcutaneously. Is that right? Yes, that is the essence of it. Um, Although there is also a lever component. So some people can be very large and obviously have fat under the skin, excess fat under the skin, but be metabolically normal. Relatively small percentage, but this is entirely recognized. At the other end of the scale, there are some severe genetic conditions with absence of subcutaneous fat. And guess what? They have high levels of liver fat, high levels of fat delivered to the pancreas, and a proportion of people get type 2 diabetes. Now, a very high proportion compared to other thin people. But even so, it's not 100% because... Some people have the problem with storing fat and the good kind of beta cell that doesn't bother about fat being on their doorstep. So, yes, the personal fat threshold uh, is largely a matter of being able to hold fat in the tissues under the skin and remain metabolically safe. If you exceed your personal fat threshold... You're likely to have diabetes if you're susceptible to it. And so in our recent study, the Retune study, we found that getting people in the normal or near normal body mass index range to lose an average of 6.5% of their body weight, they became non-diabetic. 70% became non-diabetic. So we need to set in context this unfortunate idea that doctors and nurses tend to cling to, that if you have a normal body mass index, you mustn't lose weight. Well, that's absurd, because the concept of normal is rooted in a population, and the advice is being given to one person in the consultation. We're all individuals, and I know from my patients that everyone likes being treated as an individual. That person there, which I think is about one out of six people with type 2 diabetes, is that right, who have normal BMI, what you're saying is that despite the normal BMI and from the outside looking at this person, you you may believe that they don't have any weight to lose, that person has exceeded their individual personal fat threshold and has excessive fat in the liver and pancreas to the point where things like fasting blood glucose and their HbA1c are putting them into pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes kind of territory. That's good. Okay, and the Retune study that you just did recently that you just mentioned there, that was, if I, if I'm, if I uh, have got this right, that was, the intent there was to see if type 2 diabetes in people of normal BMI shared the same etiology, the same kind of cause as type 2 diabetes in people that 
had were overweight or obese. So within this study, you were able to actually measure that with the the reduction of fat in the liver and in the pancreas in these people that have a normal BMI, with that insulin resistance reduced and blood glucose normalized. That's absolutely correct. All the processes that we had shown underlay diabetes in people who were overweight or obese were exactly the same in people who had normal weight. Now, we were able to chase the fat and show that the liver fat was high. The VLDL triglyceride that we've mentioned before, that's high. So the minute-by-minute, second-by-second delivery of fat to the insulin-producing cell, the, the level of fat in the pancreas is just a marker for that. But that delivery of fat continues, and the relief of that when people lose weight is associated with recovery of ability to make insulin. So yes, the Retune study looked under the bonnet and saw the mechanisms of diabetes are exactly the same in these slim people as in heavier people. Again, underlying the fact that type 2 diabetes is a condition of homogenous etiology, although in heterogeneous individuals. So if someone's listening and they're thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm in the normal BMI category, I'd love to know if I have exceeded my personal fat threshold, would I be right in assuming a, a basic blood test that includes triglycerides and fasting blood glucose and perhaps ApoB or non-HDL, that those sorts of markers along with you know, waist circumference are going to be a, a window into whether you've exceeded your personal fat threshold or not? I can't say that we can be absolutely sure on the basis of measurements. Uh, I can give a few guides. Yes, a person who's exceeded their personal fat threshold is likely to have a moderately raised insulin level. They're likely to have a moderately raised fat level, triglyceride level. Um, and also, they're likely to have gained weight in adult life. So... Many people regard themselves as being normal weight, but they're comparing themselves with their, uh, their friends of similar age, all of whom have put on weight. And when we ask the critical question, can you wear the same trouser waistband as you wore when you were 21? Then people get it. They can't fit into the size, say, 32-inch trousers they wore at the age of 21. Uh, they're now 35, and they think that's okay. Well, it might be okay for most people, but it might not be for them. So you see, it's a matter of likelihood, and all I can say is that the personal fat threshold can only be defined exactly if a person has type 2 diabetes loses weight and discovers for themselves where that threshold lies. For some people, and we know this from our biggest study, the direct study, some people need to lose all 15 kilograms. In fact, one person needed to go on to 20 kilograms to get rid of the, the fat sufficient to get rid of their uh, excess above the personal threshold. But some people only needed to lose a small amount. 
the majority needed to lose at least 10 kilograms. So you see, that's how the personal fat threshold works. At the moment, despite my best efforts, we've tried to develop ways of measuring it. I can't offer any concrete way of knowing for certain. There's only a matter of degrees of risk at the present time. And you said there the only way of knowing is to to lose weight. And I'm assuming to to there you're mainly keeping an eye on blood glucose. And I say this with the definition of remission, I guess, in mind here. You'd be looking at blood glucose returning to the normal range without any type of blood glucose lowering medications. Is that how you would know that you are below the personal fat threshold? Yes, that's the that's the final arbiter. And also we would expect the level of triglyceride to have fallen by thirty percent. You know, it's fifty percent raised at baseline, coming down to normal is a fall of thirty uh, percent. Uh, uh, you mentioned before that insulin levels could be elevated. This gets me thinking about kind of predicting your risk of developing type two diabetes. And, and I've seen mixed views on this about how accurate measure, you know, insulin um, lab sort of uh, assays are. But you know, before we get to the, the assay itself, what you're speaking to here is that in that early stage where you have this increased fat in the, the liver, and with that you get um, increase in in blood glucose and the pancreas responds by producing more insulin. So at, at a certain stage of this kind of journey from metabolically healthy to type 2 diabetes, you might have normal blood glucose levels but have elevated insulin because the pancreas is kind of trying to compensate and producing a lot of insulin but you are able to keep blood glucose in, in a kind of quote-unquote healthy range is is that a kind of early predictor an early kind of alarm bell so to speak that you're on your way to type 2 diabetes that you your pancreas and those beta cells are kind of fighting for their life and you're just hanging in there at that moment unfortunately the range of normal levels of insulin is such that it's very difficult to do a single test and say ah that's raised so the usual quoted normal range for plasma insulin first thing in the morning is 2 to 11 uh, millimole per litre, uh, millions per litre. But that gives it all away. If a person who usually runs at 2 millimole per litre, uh, 2 milliunits per litre uh, has risen considerably up to, say, 5 or 7, they don't stand out at all. It's only those people in the upper range who would move themselves outside the so-called normal range. So it's, it's not precise, unfortunately. And precision is a matter of being certain that the outcome of a test uh, indicates what you think it might indicate. So the precision for a fasting insulin is quite low. And there are one or two other factors. Transporting insulin to the lab is a problem. If it's left in contact with the the blood cells, especially the white blood cells, then the levels will go down steadily because the enzymes in the white blood cells will tend to be breaking it down. And so 
It needs to be separated early. It needs to be chilled. It's a difficult measure to make. There, there is one other substance that is measured alongside Epsilon often, and that is thrown out at the same time as every molecule of insulin, this bit of, if you like, garbage that helps in the manufacture is thrown out, and that's called C-peptide. And it's actually quite a useful measure of insulin secretion. Now, in blood samples, it is relatively unstable, and again, you need to handle the sample carefully. But in fact, in urine samples, it is quite stable. And although it hasn't entered any sort of routine uh, use at the present time, the overnight um, C-peptide level in urine is a reasonable guide to the amount of insulin that's actually being produced. And that could well be a simple test of the future. But, you know, I'm speculating here and looking forward uh, to indicate what might be possible. And that really underscores the fact that no, don't rely on blood tests at the present time other than other than glucose to glucose and triglyceride to detect the earliest risk of type 2 diabetes. You mentioned there that uh, another clue is just looking back at the past decade or so and seeing if you your weight has crept up. I've seen in the literature this kind of uh, recommendation to keep your waist circumference to half of your height. And I saw a few studies mentioning that that was a decent predictor of metabolic syndrome. Is that something that you've come across? Yes, indeed. And it would be a far better measure than the body mass index. Not perfect, but better. And indeed, it's one thing that I have in mind to do where I have uh, some uh, uh, spare time to go back over the data from our studies and look at the weight-height ratio and see how it just pans out, how it is as a risk factor, how it is. Um, obviously, it's a, good, um, it's a good measure of the weight loss, naturally, because you've got weight over height. Um, but as a risk factor, yes, it is actually uh, a step forward. And if only we could move away from relying upon BMI and imagining these fixed thresholds. You're obese if your BMI is over 30. Well, no, uh, it doesn't work like that because of different body types. And so uh, these amazing individuals who are playing in the Rugby World Cup at the present time, they're not obese, but many of them have BMIs over 30. They're just uh, heavily built guys with, of course, the additional training. If we're thinking a little bit more here about preventing type 2 diabetes and someone kind of wanting to know what their metabolic health status, ab above and beyond triglycerides, looking at your fasting glucose, your HbA1c, making sure that all those things are in the normal range, waist circumference to height ratio, which we just spoke about, is there any extra predictive power or rationale for DEXA scans, for example, that often have a visceral fat kind of measurement or liver ultrasound or using continuous glucose monitors. What do you, what do you think about these sorts of things for 
the general public or someone who's listening and just wants to understand you know, a, a picture or get a, a kind of look into their current metabolic health? I think I would advise such a person that the, the way to a, a happier life is to stop worrying about it, but to ensure that the weight is approximately what it was in early adult life, or if they were actually too heavy then, to bring it down a bit. Now, one measure we haven't talked about so far is the percentage body fat. That is something which, again, has a moderately wide range. Men, you'd find having a total percentage of the uh, the body as fat would be between about 9 and about uh, 20%. In women, it's higher, of course. That's just how uh, biology is set up. And it goes from the low 20s up to, say, 32. So if you're above that normal range, well, you know, you really ought to be considering shedding some weight because that's a, that's a measure, a direct measure of the uh, fat. And this is something which is easily done with these uh, fat monitors that you can find in gyms or uh, even in chemist shops. So, yes, percentage body fat is an indicator, but really just adopting this ethos, we need to maintain our early, early adult weight. Weight gain in adult life is 100% fat. So that really would be my main message. And Embarking upon tests that have a low precision has got a huge problem, and that is inducing worry. So I wouldn't advise people to seek out tests uh, unless there's a high prior probability of issues. For instance, if people in your family have type 2 diabetes... That changes the relative benefit and the precision of all these tests and pushes it up. It's a, it's a funny phenomenon that we call prior predictability. And so, yes, if there's reason to believe that you may be at risk of type 2 diabetes, then embarking upon tests, especially a simple fasting glucose test, is a very reasonable action. Otherwise, you open the floodgates of worry leading to need for more tests, more investigations, and uh, not necessarily improving your total happiness in life. Right. No, I think that's very sound advice. And even if you have that family history, uh, I guess it's still important to be using tests or getting tests that have been shown to be useful and predictive and um, so that you can actually make meaningful decisions with the data that you get um, versus some you know versus some of the things that you might come across online that seem very cutting edge but haven't necessarily been put under the scientific method and um, with that it may be that we don't know what to do with that data and that's where that anxiety and stress can can creep in because you've got a result that you know we really don't know what it means that's absolutely correct, and I, you've taken the words out of my mouth because we're just going on to say that there are various offers online 
of doing marvellous tests and divining things that are just wonderful and tell you about your your personal metabolic state and your personalised nutrition. And basically, they're not reliable. They're just completely money-making uh, scams, unfortunately. Often, they're mixed in with good points. And so, yes, many of them would advocate weight loss. Not all of them point to sensible ways of losing weight. But there is a problem if an offer is dressed up in scientific terms, saying we do continuous monitoring and uh, find out what sort of person you are, and then we advise you what to do. Well, that's hooey. Um, and basically, uh, throughout throughout human history, there have always been charlatans, and the present age is no exception. It's just that the effect has been magnified um, by the availability of information over the web. So. How do you feel about continuous glucose monitors? I think I can guess, but you know, there probably is some listeners who are thinking, surely that can't be a bad thing, Roy. I eat a meal, I have this continuous glucose monitor on my arm, I can see how my body responds to that meal. Is blood glucose elevated or I guess quote unquote spike is the term that's often used by many of these companies and in sort of lay speak online, is there any utility to a continuous glucose monitor in a person that does not have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes as a way of determining if they're developing fat in the liver and in the pancreas and perhaps on their way to developing type 2 diabetes? First of all, the continuous glucose monitors are fabulous devices for people with diabetes. They especially with type 1 diabetes, those people who need to take insulin, they're a complete revolution. And so this is an enormously exciting field. But coming back to your specific question, we don't yet have the information upon how precise the uh, application of continuous glucose monitoring can be. It has the advantage that you can see whether... Uh, first thing in the morning, your average glucose is always absolutely unremarkable. You can see whether your average after meals, say after your evening meal, when you've been eating three meals a day, hopefully no snacks in between. Well, two hours after your meal, how high is the glucose? Well, you can easily take a, an average of that. It's possible that may give a clue. It would certainly show up if a person was heading for prediabetes. Sorry, it was developing uh, in the stage of prediabetes. But we do not have the information about how precise it is. How many times would it give the wrong answer? And that is the information that we don't yet have. This will come with time. So it will be possible to answer your question. But to my knowledge at the present time... We can't be certain that the uh, that the information that one would derive from a state of normal glucose tolerance would be sufficient to say, hey, you know, in a few years I'll be heading for prediabetes. We don't have that information. Okay, so for now, in order to know if we're above or below our personal fat threshold, we're thinking about whether we've had weight gain in our adulthood, looking at the waist circumference to height ratio, we're looking at 
our fasting blood glucose, which you can get on a standard blood test. We're looking at triglycerides, HbA1c, these kind of established uh, biomarkers. And percentage body fat. And percentage body fat. And you mentioned there males sort of are in the ballpark of 9 to 20% and women from low 20s to 32%. Um, coming back to the personal fat threshold, you you spoke before about the role of genetics and that genetics can kind of dictate how much body fat you can get away with before it starts to lead to this excess fat in the liver and the pancreas, which results in this um, elevation of, of blood glucose. Is it just genetics? I've seen various studies that have looked at, at some interesting things, like, for example, sleep deprivation. I saw a study looked at sleep deprivation, and granted, following severe sleep deprivation, people consumed more calories. So I guess that comes back to the start of the twin cycle, the the excessive calorie component. But not only did they consume more calories, they seem to be storing fat more preferentially viscerally. And then also, um, if we think about certain life stages, there's quite a bit of data suggesting that as a woman enters menopause, body fat distribution can change and there can be more of this kind of abdominal fat. So is there you know, other factors at play here like sleep and hormones that can dictate where you're storing fat? Certainly, but these are all wrapped up in the individual as it were. Although you mentioned some potentially uh, uh, temporary or modifiable things such as sleep deprivation. Yes, the sleep deprivation, uh, the chronic sleep deprivation will certainly raise levels of cortisol. Now, cortisol is a a hormone that has powerful effects throughout the body. In clinical disease caused by excess cortisol, fat is stored centrally. the so-called lemon on a stick appearance of people with a severe condition whereby the muscles are wasted but the tummy is expanded with fat. So yes, chronic sleep deprivation, we can understand that. With regards to the menopause, yes certainly there is uh, a difference in distribution of fat and the difference between men and women in terms of illnesses caused by fat tends to narrow after the menopause because of because of that. Um, so those are factors. There's one interesting area that uh, is now coming into focus. For some time in animal experiments, it's been demonstrated that if uh, a rodent is uh, overweight or made diabetic during pregnancy, then there's a higher rate of diabetes in the offspring of that rodent. Now, for many years, this was regarded as curious because human data didn't seem to point to that. But now it's been worked on for so long, it does appear that there is, uh, there are additional effects that we would call epigenetic effects. In other words, just modifications, not in the genes themselves, but in the proteins and carbohydrate molecules around the genes that cause different function. So, yes, uh, there are certainly epigenetic effects 
that will contribute to this. Um, and so this may explain some part of the steady, steady rise of diabetes under conditions of stress. But if we set aside all of that, when food deprivation kicks in, then we see everyone in the same boat. And so take away the food, you take away the diabetes. So yes, there are other factors, but the simplicity underlying it all shines through in the sense of what we know when push comes to shove and food is calling the shots. So if you take away the food, take away diabetes. That's that's type different diabetes, to saying yes. type 2 diabetes. That's different to saying that there is no genetic component to type 2 diabetes. What you're saying is that not everyone who develops type 2 diabetes, sorry, not everyone that is overweight or is obese will develop type 2 diabetes. But most people, 5 out of 6, who have type 2 diabetes, if they were not overweight or obese, they would not have type 2 diabetes. Would that be accurate? That's correct, yes. When people who have, say, a body mass index of 45 lose substantial weight, go down to, say, 41, they don't have diabetes. So they're still obese, but they don't have diabetes. But of course, that's the operation of the personal fat threshold again. They've just come down. And so it's not a matter of totally getting rid of the obesity. That would be ideal, perhaps. But no, we're just talking about the metabolic side of things here. And so people can remain obese, but manage to get rid of the diabetes, even within that frame. And coming back to the direct trial, which you mentioned before, which I guess is one of the you know, more prominent trials of yours that's tested the, the twin cycle hypothesis. Um, it was 15 kilograms, I think you mentioned, that seemed to be an important kind of number, 15 kilograms of weight loss. So that was the, the typical weight loss that was required for people within that study to get enough fat out of the liver and pancreas to enter remission? The uh, average weight loss immediately after the low-calorie phase, which in direct was a 12-week phase, the average weight loss was just over 15 kilograms. So, yes, that was an average. But uh, some people needed all of that 15 kilogram weight loss to get rid of their diabetes because putting on even a small amount of weight allowed the diabetes to come back when we tested subsequently. Other people could manage to put on quite a bit and still be free of the diabetes so that at two years down the line, because direct was a two-year randomized control trial, two years down the line, in the weight loss group, the average weight loss uh, had uh, dropped to 8.8 8 kilograms. And even so, one third uh, of the entire group was still in remission from the diabetes. So you see, uh, that's, that's how it works. Uh, ex we need to aim for the 15 kilogram weight loss. That will take most people into the range where the chances are they'll be free of diabetes. 
that has the important effect of demonstrating to everyone concerned the possibilities. So if at, say, 15 kilograms a person is in remission, but then life kicks in and they're distracted with other problems and their weight increases by, say, 3 kilograms, they're going into 12 kilograms, if they're still free of diabetes, well, life goes on, but the chances are that they will just continue to put on a bit of weight, especially if they discover they can uh, put on weight without getting their diabetes back. Suddenly, say at 10.5 kilograms, the doctor says, well, I'm sorry, you've got your diabetes back again. What do you want to do about it? Are you going to lose more weight again? Or uh, I can give you these drugs? Well, you see, the target of 15 kilograms is fairly secure and a good target for most people. And it's also a wake-up call along the lines of get real. You know, how much extra fat do you think you're carrying around? Because most people in our studies have put on more than 15 kilograms than they were when they were in early adult life. So 15 kilograms is not a complete return to a state of youth. It's a return most of the way and will be sufficient to achieve the metabolic goal. So in indirect, you mentioned there was a 12-week low-calorie dietary intervention. Average weight loss was 15 kilograms. So was that average weight loss, Roy, from the 12-week low-calorie intervention? And perhaps you can explain to someone what that kind of looked like if they haven't heard, it, heard uh, that being explained before. Or was that 15 kilograms achieved through the two years by doing this sort of low-calorie cycle multiple times? No, and this is one of the really important points of uh, our work, that to lose weight, it's much easier to do it in a short, distinct period of time. You've got a short focus period of time. You can plan when to start it, avoiding birthdays and wedding anniversaries maybe, and uh, you know that, okay, you're going to have to give up certain things, perhaps avoid some parties during that time, so the defined nature of this low-calorie period is quite important. Also, the original reason why I designed this, this approach to weight loss, to test, the counterpoint, uh, to test in the counterpoint study, this twin cycle hypothesis, the original reason was that the old literature pointed out that what they called very low-calorie diets, and they were very low, were not associated with hunger. Now, that was a fascinating detail that has stuck in my mind from the old literature. And so that was one of the reasons I went for it. And indeed, we find that people are very hungry over the first 36 hours, but you've just got to tough it out. If you feel too hungry, drink a pint of water. Have a list of things in advance to do. Fixing that door on the cupboard or uh, going out and sorting out whatever in the garden. So that was first 36 hours is difficult, but after that, people suddenly find that they're not hungry all the time, despite only taking this diet, which in direct was four 200-calorie liquid uh, shakes. That's a packet of powder made up in a pint of water, partly because it's high protein, about 25% protein. It's actually quite satisfying. 
and it does actually fill you up. Uh, that's the recipe for restricting yourself to two hundred uh, to eight hundred kilocalories, just two hundred per meal. As I say, indirect, we used four sashes a day. In our early studies in Newcastle, and continuing now, we use what we believe is a, a better accepted version, which is just three shakes a day, but uh, a large plateful of salad foods or non-starchy vegetables. That allows people to enjoy feeling crunch. It eases the matter of this second phase, which is moving from the low-calorie diet back towards normal eating. How do we do that? After counterpoint, I was surprised when people came to me and said, look, Doc, it was actually much easier than I expected going on this low-calorie diet, but it was so difficult coming off it. So we had to design a stepped food reintroduction. So in counterbalance, we introduced one meal and just kept on two shakes per day, and then we introduced a second meal a week later and carried on with one shake a day, and then finally, after a further couple of weeks, we dropped that final shake. So people gradually got used to how much of normal food to eat, what to eat, and having a blank slate upon which to write new dietary habits is really rather good. And so we can re-educate people, and all of them are primed in advance, that when they get back to eating normal food, they can expect to eat only about three quarters of the amount they were habitually putting on their plate beforehand. That's quite important. They need to know that in advance. Those are all ways that we try and set up the most difficult phase. The most difficult phase is keeping the weight off in the long term. Because if you look at it biologically, you have the same person doing the same things in the same environment, fast food environment, an environment where it's become socially acceptable to eat when you're walking down the street, even, according to Hollywood, to eat when you're talking. Where did that come from? You see, the social change in the last 50 years has been astonishing around food, but that's all part of the obesogenic environment. It's not just the fast food and the availability of food constantly and uh, the, the, lack of, uh, the lack of satisfying nature of fast food. That's all part of it. But avoiding that and keeping your weight constant, that's a class act. And that's something that we don't have easy answers to. But uh, people who are sufficiently motivated can certainly do it. So that at five years from our direct study, these are data that we've presented at scientific meetings and not quite yet published, but I can say at five years, people were still very considerably below their starting weight. The average weight was still 6.1 kilograms below baseline. Now, for a dietary study at five years, that's never been achieved before. Now, only those people who kept off an average of nine kilograms were still in remission at five years, but that says it all. Because it's a matter of, yes, getting the weight off. But the human difficulty is one that I'm very alive to. And we're constantly working to try and improve this matter of preventing weight regain 
after this very successful method of losing weight. What percentage was that, Roy, of the the intervention subjects who were able to to uh, stay in remission and achieve that nine kilogram weight loss at five years? That, of the people who are in remission at two years, it was twenty six percent who are in remission at five years. But overall, if we look at the line upon the starting line, one hundred and forty nine people uh, started off in the weight loss group. Then it was. Uh, 11% of those 149 people. We lost track of some of them, but we still count them in saying 11%. If we stick to the information we know for definite, then yes, 13% were in a remission. So in round figures, around 12%. You might say, but that's, that's not very good. Hey, if we use a drug, we talk about number needed to treat. And a number needed to treat that's quite good would be about 1 in 10, 1 in 12. So if you use a drug, then 1 in 10 people are going to actually benefit from it for the reason that it's prescribed, to prevent a heart attack, for instance. But here we have a simple dietary lifestyle information method that produces more than 1 in 10 of remission of uh, a disease which causes terrible morbidity and early death. So 12% has got to be set in perspective, and it's good. It's not good enough. We can improve on this. But of course, that is a challenge for medicine and healthcare systems to use this information and to put it to good use. Yeah, and that 11% or 13% is also not considering the potential benefits that people would have had who did enter remission who are perhaps not in remission but surely there is some benefit to improved blood lipids and improved blood glucose for a period of years when you're considering your overall risk of cardiovascular disease for example yes and please you ask me about that because this is one of the most dramatic findings again uh, as yet unpublished i hope it'll be published in a few weeks time but it has been made public uh, at scientific meetings. If we take that 149 people on the starting line for direct in the weight loss group, 149 in the control group, the risk of any serious illness was halved in those people that undertook the weight loss. So merely starting off on the weight loss, even though some people dropped out quite early, small number, but they did, the overall adverse event rate was half. Now, what was driving that? <clears throat> well, there were a few less strokes. The numbers weren't large enough to show a difference in heart attacks. We had very few of those. But the main difference was in infections of all kinds, including leading to serious foot infections, and in new cancers. Now, in the people in the weight loss group, uh, the number of cancers that they developed in, f in five years was one. And that was in someone who dropped out early and probably didn't lose weight. The number in the control group that were treated according to conventional best practice was eight. Now, these numbers are small, but hey, a ratio of 8 to 1 of new cancers, cancers that we know are related to overweight and obesity, 
that is a fabulous outcome of uh, a direct study. So, yes, health benefits of weight loss are very considerable. And could I just make a jump forward to knock on the head a silly idea that's been around for a long time? Yo-yo dieting is bad for your health. That's nonsense. There's no uh, consistent information that losing weight and putting it on is bad for overall health in the weight range we're talking about. So we can be sure that people who lose weight and keep it off for a while and over a period of time have reduced their average weight, they will gain hugely and there will be not only healthier but also happier people. To kind of double click on that concept of yo-yo dieting and coming back to this intervention. So just to be clear, when you looked at the the five-year data and I think you said there was 26% of, of people that were, were in remission or 26% of people in remission from two years were still in remission at five years. Is this still a group of people who only did that that low calorie intervention that 12 week intervention that was 800 kilocalories a day and they only did that once they weren't repeating that over the the years to come if they put on weight they were offered the possibility of using the low calorie products again because what we discovered in direct was that people of course put on weight during times of uh, stress due to family illness, due to financial reasons, all these factors uh, kick in. And when someone is busy dealing with this, the, the matter of concentrating on food intake and keeping it down goes out of the window. So we found that the commonest reason for weight regain was a sudden event, which of course passes. And so when that event had passed, we offered people the chance to regain the uh, the previous advantage. So that was a process that was running in the background and in direct, half of all the participants needed at least one of what we called a rescue package. So yes, this is part of the business of avoiding long-term weight regain. And so if people put on weight, it's not a failure. It's just something to be dealt with. So yes, some people did have short periods of low-calorie intervention to get the weight back down again. But by and large, they were just living entirely ordinary lives, eating ordinary foods, trying to avoid fast foods, um, and keeping an eye on their weight. I think you said 36% of, of the subjects in the intervention group in, in direct achieved remission at two years which is remarkable that's that's an incredible result to see but if you if we flip that statistic just for a moment and and let's let's think about the individuals so let's think about the two out of three individuals who who come back and and are not in remission so that's 64 percent what are the main reasons that you believe would explain why they didn't achieve remission well, there's really the weight regain that sticks out uh, a mile. So uh, the people who were in remission uh, maintained their weight loss far better 
than the ones who relapsed. And so that was very obvious, for instance, at the five-year mark, when the average for the whole group was a weight loss of six kilograms. But that was uh, swayed, as it were, by the small group who were in remission, who were still at uh, just under nine kilograms, 8.9 kilograms weight loss. So uh, if we'd look at the people who'd lost remission, my uh, rough calculation would be probably about five and a half kilograms below baseline compared with nine to stay in remission over five years. So that's how it stacks up. So that's the main reason. And of course, you could look for reasons underlying that. And life stresses are a big uh, a big matter. Uh, changes to social circumstances, etc. So these are, these are things that affect real people. And as doctors, we just need to advise how best to navigate those. But I think having demonstrated the biology of type 2 diabetes, having shown what a simple condition it is uh, in the managing concept, it helps doctors deal with all these complexities because life is complex. And I wouldn't believe, wouldn't uh, suggest for a moment that this was a, a simple matter for an individual to deal with, but we can see the main factors and deal with them. That's really the exciting, uh, the exciting consequence. How important is how long someone has had type two diabetes? I think I've, I've read in your work that this strategy of weight loss and getting below your personal fat threshold is more effective in the person who still has some beta cell function and can, can with, with weight loss, can start to get a normal kind of insulin response. Can you kind of speak to that and I guess the, the importance of once, if, if you are diagnosed with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, the importance of trying to lose that weight and get below the personal fat threshold as quickly as possible? Yes. So the two questions were there. One is achieving remission in the first place. The other is keep, how long you can keep it off. So achieving remission in the first place, uh, this is strongly influenced by the duration of prior uh, diabetes. Now, in the, the famous counterpoint study that proved the twin cycle hypothesis, I opted to study people only in the first four years, a completely arbitrary decision, but we had to start somewhere. But in counterbalance, we tackle the question, okay, will we see the same information, the same results, if we study people with long duration type 2 diabetes as well? So in counterbalance, we had people with duration of just a few months of diabetes up to 24 years. And we showed very clearly that the longer the duration, the less likely uh, the chance of remission was, perhaps down to maybe a few percent chance, 5% at 20, 23 years, which is the, uh, the longest I've observed personally. Um, but in reality, we know that the shorter the duration, that's the most important factor for remission, assuming the weight loss. And so taking up your pre-diabetes point, yes, pre-diabetes, that's the time to act because 
you will almost certainly be able to achieve remission of diabetes, assuming it's true type 2 diabetes. But how long can you keep it away? Well, provided weight is kept down from all my observations, it suggests that diabetes will remain away as long as the body avoids weight regain. My longest duration personal patient is uh, uh, coming up for 19 years. And so, yes, duration is uh, a real factor. And if people keep the weight loss off, remission is going to be at least prolonged. What is it about the duration, Roy? Is it is it that the longer you are above your personal fat threshold, the more damage there is to these beta cells and they just eventually lose the, the ability to secrete insulin? Yes. The most dramatic piece of information from the counterbalance study was that people who went into remission had an insulin response at baseline when we first tested them in the diabetic state that was pretty poor. It was about half normal. The group that didn't go in remission had an insulin response at baseline that was almost none. So you see, there was that flicker of life still in the people who went on to be able to get remission. So yes, it is a matter of how long the insulin-producing cells, the beta cells, have been exposed to fat. And of course, glucose, because the fat assault on the beta cell is joined by a glucose assault on the beta cell And that's why in diabetes, the beta cell continues to go downhill. So there's a lot of different, I guess, dietary strategies out there to, to, to help create a uh, calorie deficit and, and promote weight loss. And there's a lot of debate and fighting between low fat and high fat and different styles of, of kind of dietary restriction. I'm assuming that your view here is that the best option for at least some people we can go into who that might be or might not be is to utilize a sort of one of these very low calorie diet intensive you know short duration it's not a lifetime thing you kind of rob the bank or i think you say in your book seven days to slay the monster um is is that where you're at that if if you had prediabetes or you had type 2 diabetes, that you think that's the most effective strategy for someone to adopt from a dietary point of view? Yes, on average. Although individuals may have individual preferences. Circumstances may vary so that other, other ways may suit. But there are some really important points to make about achieving weight loss. The most important thing is that you achieve it. And so setting this goal of 15 kilograms weight loss for most people in the overweight or obese range is important. You realize how much you've got to lose. Now, just fiddling with the components of food, raising or lowering this or that, is not going to achieve that. You need to have a very substantial cutback in, say, Uh, the fat content of food, which would make it unpalatable for many people. The carbohydrate content of food, well, certainly in the UK, 
very low calorie diet, very low carbohydrate diets are quite unpopular. They're not sustainable because people actually feel they need some modest amount of carbohydrate. So changing the composition is not terribly good in general. However, there are as many successful diets as there are different individuals. And some people really don't mind a low-fat diet. Some people don't mind missing out all-carbohydrate foods, but they're few and far between. And that's why randomized studies randomize people to a group of this diet compared with that diet. But of course, in this group, just imagine you've got half the people that suit the one and not the other. And in the other group, you've got half the people that suit uh, the other and not the one. And so they end up having results that are 49, 51%. And so it's very understandable that there's confusion in this area. So how to approach it? Well, for the individual, you've got to suck it and see. I would advise going for the low-calorie diet, getting rid of the type 2 diabetes. That's the go-getting aim. But if for some reason that's unfeasible or found to be absolutely impossible, then why not try one of the other methods? The Mediterranean-style eating with low-carb is probably the best uh, researched, and intermittent fasting is probably uh, the second best researched and used in practice. Other forms of dieting, entirely possible. Let's move to the other extreme for the moment and take the celebrity diets. A celebrity says, well, you know, what I did was to only eat kiwi fruits and absolutely nothing else. Well, it somehow suited them. Maybe they are not being quite straight in reporting the total amount of weight they lost due to that alone. Uh, maybe there was assistance from other uh, other means. So any diet can work if it suits the individual. And we have to mention at this point, there are other ways of losing weight. In extremists, if people have tried all the methods and they find their appetite drive still uh, produces failure, well, those bariatric surgery, which is very successful, although does have a higher complication rate than surgeons admit to. And then we've got the new magic drugs. Well, no drug is magic. These come along with side effects and have got to be used carefully and properly. But if used carefully and properly, then they can achieve weight loss and they too would do the bit. So we've got a range of measures. My work has established what can be done within the constraints of the NHS, as that is a very severely cash-limited service, cash-restricted service, you might say. And uh, I had to demonstrate for a thing to be useful, it had to be low cost. And this is a highly cost-effective way of going about weight loss, which makes it suitable for healthcare systems. And just to clarify, the, the kind of magic drugs you're talking about there are drugs like GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic, um, which I'm sure a lot of people have have heard of. And to kind of, I guess, underscore a point that, there that you made about diet studies and how they may have 
certain people randomized to a group who do well on a certain macronutrient ratio, some that do poorly, and then in the opposite arm, the same thing. I previously had Professor Christopher Gardner on the show, and he spoke exa- to exactly that point about diet fits. And one of the interesting things that they looked at, um, and that was a 12-month low-carb versus low-fat trial, and I know that you'll be aware of it, um, but the average weight loss was not significantly different, but when you went in and looked at the waterfall plots, you did see on each arm, some people did poorly on low fat, some did well. And same thing with low carb. Um, so to your point, at this stage, without being able to predict who's going to do best on low carb or low fat, then the individual can kind of play around with it and see what feels easiest um, for for them. I do wonder though, in one context, Roy, whether there is an advantage to a low-carb diet. So if we come back to the person that's had type 2 diabetes for quite a while and their pancreas is just completely beat out, they can't produce insulin, even if they're, they're losing weight, they're one of those people that are not entering remission. Do you think that is a context where a reduced-carbohydrate diet might have an advantage? Sure, but it depends what level you're starting from. And that's the whole point. The matter of low carb, the whole debate has been uh, made complicated by the fact that people were talking about different things. Now, in the UK, we're talking about perhaps 55% carbohydrate consumption on average. That means some people are taking 65, 70. For them, it will make a huge difference to uh, the diabetes as you describe it to drop down to, say, 45, which is a very sane uh, level. If someone was tootling along at 45% carb intake, dropping it further probably won't make a huge amount further difference because uh, there the body is coping and it needs a certain amount of carbohydrate uh, to function optimally. And so... We've got this difficult matter of what is excess. Certainly, uh, at having sugar-sweetened beverages is an obvious excess that can be cut out. Adding sugar to tea and coffee, don't do it. Taking desserts, well, perhaps uh, in limited quantities. How about the big sources of carbohydrate, that is, potato, rice, pasta, bread? Well, that needs to be looked at. And it's certainly sane to have a moderately carbohydrate-reduced diet. Probably the ideal is a Mediterranean-style diet, in other words, lots of salad, uh, non-starchy veg products, and moderate uh, carbohydrate reduction. How important is overall diet quality? Because we've spoken a lot about energy and, I guess... At the beginning, when outlining the twin cycle hypothesis, you kind of underscored this uh, very small but long-lasting calorie surplus kind of being at the base of the development of type 2 diabetes. But I've seen quite a few studies that have looked at, uh, for example, comparing different types of 
fats in the diet. So comparing foods that are rich in saturated fats versus foods rich in polyunsaturated fats and, and seeming to show that when you swap calories from saturated fat for polyunsaturated fats, that there is an improvement in insulin sensitivity and a reduction in liver fat. Are these things important for people to also consider sort of above and beyond calories and weight loss, the kind of makeup of that dietary pattern and you know the types of macronutrients that they're consuming? You'll get much more bang for your buck by reducing the total amount of food eaten than by changing the composition of food. The reason is the body sees relatively little of the food you eat. It goes through the liver. The liver will change the fat. It will take carbohydrate and turn it into fat. Excess carbohydrate, as we've mentioned, gets turned into 100% saturated fat. That is really quite a worry. And by excess, we're looking at people taking you know, 60-70% carbohydrate uh, in their diet, which unfortunately is entirely uh, unremarkable in terms of the population. So, yes, the only sane approach is to uh, avoid obvious sources of saturated fat without decreasing your enjoyment of what you eat. And so, using uh, olive oil, using uh, monounsaturated or polyunsaturated oils for cooking, yes, that seems to be a no-brainer. Uh, not using excess, that also is straightforward. Not eating excess fat. I think perhaps that uh, thick layer of fat around your pork chop is best left on the plate. So there are certain obvious steps that you can do to achieve moderation. That word that's so often used but rarely defined. In this dietary composition. So yes, dietary composition matters. But if you were to ask me, what's the number one uh, uh, consideration? What's the number one characteristic of a healthy diet? It's to take in the amount of energy that your body needs from day to day and not to have excess year on year. So avoiding energy toxicity, really. Yes, and I know this might take us into the weeds a little bit, but I'm interested. Why is it that saturated fats have a, a differing effect on the liver, on hepatic fat or insulin sensitivity at the liver compared to polyunsaturated fats? Is that a, a mechanism that you have come across? I don't think it's completely unraveled. But at the level of the molecules operating in the cell... If you have saturated fat, it's, a, it's a, a carbon chain which is very bendy. If you have a monounsaturated fat, it's got an angle in it. It is a different substance for the, the cell apparatus to handle. And so the geometry of the molecules may well be an important part of what we see as to what comes out at the other end. So that's the best answer I can give. Uh, bridging the epidemiology, which just reports the phenomena, to the absolute molecular level. And so that's the state of the art as far as I'm aware. Perhaps uh, switched on by a chemist might be able to give a more precise answer. But as I understand it, 
it's the handle of the molecule that is produced because these fat molecules are long. This saturated fat produced by the liver is 16 carbons and most of the fat molecules in human blood are 16 to 18 carbons and they're usually long and flexible. Change that and you change the behaviour of the fat. I think that's really the overall answer at the present time. You've mentioned a few times that the body can convert excess carbohydrates into fat in the liver. I just want to clarify something here. I think that there's this you know, pervasive view out there that carbohydrates, they're driving weight gain and, and diabetes. And you, know, you and I know that not all sources of carbohydrates are, are equal. You know, a jelly bean, I often say, for example, probably doesn't have the same effect on our health as a black bean. But what would you say to someone who's been led to believe that all carbohydrates are bad and because blood sugar is elevated in people with type 2 diabetes, carbohydrates must be the cause of type 2 diabetes? Well, I point them to the simple way that uh, the body works and allowed them to wake up this morning because they only woke up this morning because their brain was supplied with glucose second by second throughout the night. Now, where did that come from? Well, it came from the blood. But hang on, there's a funny business here because the blood glucose level didn't drop overnight. It was constant. Yes. So where's it coming from? It's coming from the liver. The liver puts out enormous amounts of glucose. Overnight, uh, you'll put out 10 grams every hour. That's for an average-sized man uh, in average health. But in diabetes, you're putting out about 15 grams an hour. So it's not to do with the food. You're looking at metabolism determining the blood glucose level. Certainly the food eaten won't help. And so avoiding excess carbohydrate is absolutely um, a sensible move. Trying to go to very low levels of carbohydrate, well, if that's the only way a person can lose weight and therefore change the internal workings of their body, then, yeah, you could do that. But going from moderate carbohydrate downwards doesn't make much difference to the liver, which is busy functioning away, setting the blood glucose level. The third macronutrient is protein, and you mentioned before that your low-calorie meal replacements, they were high-protein. I've come across some interesting uh, data recently that, um, to my understanding, sort of suggested that certain amino acids may trigger insulin release uh, in people with type 2 diabetes whose beta cells kind of no longer respond well to, to glucose. And, and what I've read is that the, the kind of nutrient sensing pathways may be different. So there can be this dysfunctional glucose response, but the protein response within the pancreas is kind of preserved. What do you think about that and this idea of maybe using protein perhaps at the beginning of a meal to kind of trigger the release of insulin and, and perhaps better handle a meal with carbohydrates? Well... We did actually report that could be used to limit the biggest rise in blood glucose in people with type 2 diabetes, which happens after breakfast. So 
taking a high-protein snack, we used soya beans uh, and yogurt, as I recall, to achieve this. Uh, two hours before a standard breakfast resulted in half the rise in blood glucose levels. Now, all that work came out of investigating what's called the second meal effect. If you look at the blood glucose rise after lunch, it's much smaller than the blood glucose rise after breakfast, even if you eat the same foods at the same meal time in the same quantities. And I was busy investigating that because I thought that it was a matter of the uh, protein load, and we use protein not to try and stimulate the beta cell, but to suppress the levels of fat production, because it would cause a very slight increase in insulin, but that would suppress fat, and I thought that would make the body more insulin sensitive, and indeed it does. So the bottom line is, what you say has got some degree of truth in it, but when we come to looking at studies of trying to eat steak to minimise um, the effects of diabetes, that doesn't quite work all the way through. So I can't say that having a high-protein diet would make a significant difference over and above the factors that we've mentioned. In your interventions, there didn't seem to be a focus on exercise. And I guess given the importance of skeletal muscle in glucose homeostasis, I wondered if you'd ever considered um, the inevitable kind of muscle loss that, that comes with losing a significant amount of body weight, particularly if you're not doing resistance training concurrently. Sure. Focusing for a moment on the the loss of muscle mass, uh, this is something we've measured. It was uh, uh, a 4% decrease in uh, uh, fat-free mass of the body in the counterpoint study. So we measured everything in that first study. Now, if I persuaded you to walk around every day wearing uh, a weights vest that contained 15 kilograms of weight, guess what? Your muscle mass would increase by a few percent over eight weeks. If people lose 15 kilograms, the muscle mass has to decrease because every day they're carting around less body. And the muscles we're talking about are the muscles you never think about very much, that the huge muscles maintaining the posture of the lower back and keeping the hips in the right position. Those are the real energy consumers uh, during moving ourselves around our curious race of bipeds. We rely on those muscles and a lot of uh, energy there. So when people are 15 kilograms lighter, there's a physiological reason for them to have less muscle mass. This has been completely misinterpreted as, oh dear, the weight loss causes loss of useful muscle. Well, no, it's not useful muscle. The body decides how much muscle is useful by how much work it has to do every day. You can prevent this using resistance exercise, and that's absolutely right. And I would add that in the Newcastle Magnetic Resonance Centre, we've not just been researching uh, food and diabetes, we also do exercise studies on ordinary people, couch potatoes and athletes. So this is an area that we're really very tuned into. 
So our studies of resistance exercise show very precisely that uh, that is a very good way of building muscle. Why didn't we use it in counterpoint? Well, the reason relates to one of our exercise studies, which took a group of inactive people and got them to train up. And we made measurements on them throughout this period so that they could do a half marathon. They all completed the Great North Run. I have to say they didn't all run it. Uh, there was a lot of walking, but they all did it. And moving from their totally sedentary uh, behaviour to doing this was remarkable. What happened to the level of fitness? It went up remarkably. What happened to their weight? It did not change. Now, they had burnt huge amounts of energy in the training, in the, during the race. Why hadn't it changed? After every research project, we invite back our participants to uh, hear the results. We explain the results for them, what they've gone through all these traumas of measurements for, as well as finding out how it was for them. Because that's how we learn how people can perhaps have studies done in a more tolerable fashion. We learn how, for instance, a diet was affecting people. But in this case, I wanted to hear how it was for these people uh, after all their training. And I said, one of the funny things is, the average weight stayed exactly the same, even though we were burning so much energy, and I don't expect it to drop. And this lady put up her hand and said, you don't understand, doctor. When you're coming back from your half-hour walk, you've only got one thought in your mind. I deserve that pie. And suddenly, I had a completely different perspective on ordinary people doing much more exercise than usual and the thoughts and behaviour that elucidated. So I went to the literature and found out if there was any basis for this. Yes, compensatory eating uh, after starting an exercise programme is well recognised. This explains why your friends might say to you, hey, I joined that gym, I've slogged my guts out for three months, my weight hasn't changed, it's just not working, I don't know what's going on. Compensatory eating. And so this is why we asked people not to undertake additional exercise during the counterpoint study. And that's gone all the way through. And so in the NHS National Remission Programme, people are not asked to undertake more exercise during the weight loss phase. But let me emphasise a really important point. During the weight maintenance phase, we actively encourage people to increase what they do. If people want to uh, make their neck a bit broader because they might have lost weight there, well, they can do upper body weights. That's very popular with men. So the exercise message is not that you mustn't do it. It's that we must separate in time the matter of weight loss from increased physical activity. That's a very important practical point. And it's one that is so often missed out by exercise enthusiasts who are quite rightly enthusiastic about exercise. But these young trainers think that everybody would respond to exercises they do as a habitual activity and not actually look at the literature and realise that people haven't, who haven't done it before 
will increase what they eat when they start an exercise program. There's a lot in that. I guess one of the things that my head keeps going back to is the etiology of type 2 diabetes and the, the insulin resistance in muscle tissue. And uh, I appreciate that you said there that there wasn't a lot of muscle mass lost during the, the um, weight loss intervention. But just to kind of maybe push back a tiny bit, I'm not sure if, if the average person in the general public with poor metabolic health has a lot of, a lot of muscle mass in the first place at baseline. So, you know, they're probably already under muscled. And I guess my, my point here is, um, not to question what you're saying about appetite. I hear that. I wonder if over the two year and five years, even if it's outside of the weight loss intervention, I wonder if people have very specific resistance training in place that they might have, there might be a a higher rate of remission um, by by improving someone's ability to to kind of manage blood glucose by having this this greater glucose sink, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. I'm completely on on board with that. Um, Indeed, Exercise and specifically walking was actively encouraged, was measured, was mentioned at every follow-up visit. But there's a further aspect we haven't touched on. And this is illustrated by what happened when we measured the effect of this exercise advice. So we used accelerometers, accurate triaxial accelerometers fitted on the upper arm uh, to measure uh, physical activity. Um, during the whole of the direct randomized trial. And what we found was our well-meaning advice to increase more was met with reports of doing more exercise. The objective measurement from the accelerometer showed absolutely no change. Now, you might be very disappointed in that. You think, well, maybe they weren't terribly good at giving the advice. But in fact... The further factor I mentioned was that people who develop type 2 diabetes tend to do less physical activity than the rest of the population. They tend to like activity less. Whether this is a biological feature or it's merely an additional factor that makes the diabetes more likely, we don't know. But yes, I agree entirely with uh, the point you made, but it has to be set in perspective And with regard to these people who don't have enormous amounts of muscle, well, in fact, large people have very large muscles. Um, And the muscle that a person has reflects their everyday activity. It's whatever they need to do what they do. And these people need less to move around in exactly the same way as it did before. You might say the final arbiter is, well, how do they feel? The quality of life improved indirect, and that remains so, in fact, throughout uh, the five years of the study. So the biggest barrier to, to curbing type 2 diabetes and getting more people into remission would seemingly be adherence to dietary restriction. And you mentioned a few times that losing weight and keeping it off 
it's a hard business, particularly in the environment that we're we're in now, this obesogenic environment that in many ways is kind of set up for people to fail. So if we zoom right out here, Roy, what needs to be addressed at a society level to help more people stay below their personal fat threshold and really squeeze type 2 diabetes out of our communities? We need a rational approach to the matter of food provision. Now, this question becomes political because inevitably uh, this involves legislation. We don't bring about societal change without legislation by and large. So the smoking business would not have happened were it not to be outlawed in uh, indoor communal places. That actually produces a sea change. The matter of wearing seatbelts, we knew that it saved lives, but it was hardly done until the seat law, seatbelt law was introduced. Same with motorbike helmets. Chromatic reduction in mortality. But no one notices that their motorcycling brother or son is not killed. They were wearing a, a helmet, and so it, it passes under the radar. With food... Here we've got a highly toxic substance in excess that is one of the few toxic substances that's not regulated. Talk about any other toxin? Yes, we have sensible legislation. Mention food, and I'm afraid politicians are swayed by arguments of, oh, we don't want a nanny state, we can't legislate about food, everybody needs it. Well, that might be true, but... Uh, we can put reasonable limits on. So what are those reasonable limits? Well, the first thing was a small step in the right direction of putting a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages that forced a reformulation. It caused horror in the soft drinks industry who said, well, we're going to have redundancies and our profits are going to go down and shareholders will suffer. It was done. What happened to employment? No change. What happened to the profits? And we can see now the published profits continue to rise in a straight line. So that argument was untrue. And exactly the same arguments are being made about restrictions upon two things. The amount of added sugar in uh, prepared foods, fast foods and ready meals. And total quantity served. Now that's a more difficult uh, item to deal with. But those are changes that can be made to legislation along with the restriction of fast food outlets near schools. Certainly in the UK, we have a terrible problem with childhood obesity. So there are sensible moves that can be made, but it requires the general population to be demanding of politicians so that we get above this silly party political business and arguments about nanny states to actually achieve a safe environment for our children and for the future of mankind. Are there still questions that remain unanswered that you have from a scientific point of view, or do we understand enough now about type 2 diabetes that you could retire, you could maybe move into politics, Roy? Um, it's not a case of, of, of not knowing enough. It's just a case of not doing what we know. Um, 
is is that where we are right now, or do we need more studies on on type two diabetes to get a better kind of handle on it? A oh, great question. Uh, I think we're in possession of all the knowledge we need to make sensible changes to our environment, legislative changes included. But do we know everything? No, we don't. And we would benefit by learning more. Uh, exactly what is it that causes the insulin-producing cell to start curling up its toes and not performing well? We don't really understand that. And it's still a relatively under-researched area because the scientists investigating the beta cell have been focused on glucose because that's so easy to use in the lab to produce a stressed beta cell. But there have been relatively few studies, apart from the ones that informed the twin cycle hypothesis, uh, of researching the effect of fat on the beta cell. Those very early studies illustrated the point I made about some people not being sensitive to fat. Well, their beta cells just don't care if there's fat around. Whereas the beta cells from sensitive people, they go under. We don't understand the processes. We don't understand why. So, yes, there are scientific questions that remain open, but that's no excuse for not acting now with regards to the wider population health and for individuals to be advised by doctors for their best metabolic health. Is it still a hypothesis, the the twin cycle hypothesis, or would you say that it's been proven and, I guess, is a model? It's one of these curious things, the term hypothesis always sticks. Uh, You might say uh, it could almost be described as a theorem, but we don't don't use that terminology. So it's a hypothesis that's been proven. Now, we know from Newtonian mechanics and Einstein's revelations and then revelations about subatomic particles that proven hypotheses can be adjusted into the future. But hey, each of them is largely right. And so Yes, the major advances we've made will remain true. So, yes, the twin cycle hypothesis, I think, will remain TCH. Uh, the personal fat threshold will remain um, PFT. Uh, these are hypotheses. The second one is more of a concept. Um, the terminology is quaint, perhaps, but at least it illustrates progress. Well, Roy, this has been incredible. Um, your work is offering a lot of hope to to a lot of people. I think you've you know, answered a lot of questions that no doubt many of the, the listeners have. And I have a quote here from one of your reviews. Um, it's actually the, the opening kind of couple of sentences. Type 2 diabetes was once thought to be irreversible and progressive, but a series of clinical studies over the past 12 years most of which, if not all, have been your studies, have clarified the mechanisms that cause the disease. We now know that processes that cause type 2 diabetes can be returned to normal functioning by restriction of food energy to achieve weight loss of around 15 kilograms. So um, I just wanted to emphasize you know, how grateful we are for, for all of the work that you're doing and have done and and everything that you've unearthed about type 2 diabetes it really does offer a lot of hope for a lot of people thank you so much for joining us today and hopefully we can connect again some point in the future and uh, perhaps continue the conversation in a part two 
Thank you for the opportunity of communicating this exciting science home. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.